Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Newcastle Bible Church. We're glad you're with us today. Would you please stand with us and let's sing together. Like a boomerang, we are returning kids to what the Bible says about the value of life. We'll discover how precious each and every one of us is to God, from the tiniest to the oldest, 
Each person is made in the image of God, wonderfully designed to know Him and to live for Him. Out of His great love, God offers us salvation through His Son, Jesus. Kids will learn that life is valuable. Grab your sunnies, that's your sunglasses and your mates. Those are your friends. And get ready for a fair dinkum time at Zoomerang. Well, good day, church. <laughs> I promise I'll try to limit the cheesy Australian accents. <laughs> Uh, We are excited. We're only a few weeks away from our vacation Bible school program for the children here at Newcastle Bible Church and in our community. This is a time we look forward to each and every year when we have the chance to speak the truth of God's word into the hearts of so many kids. And this year, a very cool theme, a very pertinent theme of returning to the value of human life, what God has designed us for and what he created us for. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of a more pertinent topic in today's culture than the value of human life. And so we're excited for this. We would love for all the kids in our church to be able to take part of this July 11th to the 14th. Sign-ups are now available for that. Uh, You can do so uh, online or through our app or even out here in the North Commons area. We have a table set up so you can do that. If you can't be with us that week, just remember we do have a Goodfield VBS the following week that we would love for your kids to go to. If you're like, man, we are out of town this week, we can't can't be there, well, you can take part in our other VBS program, which will be the same theme and everything, so we'd love for you to consider which of these weeks work for you. And again, if you're wondering like how you can be a part of it, we do still have volunteer opportunities as well. So please consider a way that you might be a part of this week. This is one of our greatest gospel ministry opportunities each year. So please consider how you can be a part of what God's doing through our children's ministry. Well, today is a special day as we think about fathers in our uh, church family. We're reminded of the love that God has shown us as a father from 1 John chapter 3, where he reminds us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. We just recognize the value of fathers in our life, and we do uh, just want to honor and recognize you guys for the work that you're doing in the lives of your family. We have given a donation to Peoria Rescue Ministries just as a a thank you and a recognition of God's value and place for fathers in uh, the life of the family. And so we are just grateful for you, men. Keep doing what you're doing. Grow in your sanctification and your fear and knowledge of the Lord, because we know that has such an important impact on your families. Well, as we prepare for our services today, just a reminder to fill out that Connect card that you find there in uh, your worship folder. Take a few minutes, drop it in those uh, tables on your way out of the service this morning. You can do so also on our app. If you're somebody who doesn't want to do this, you can go to our Church Center app and fill in your attendance that way. Submit any prayer requests. Remember, based on last week, we want to be a church that prays for one another. And that includes being humble and transparent and being able to put your prayers before the church so that we can lift you up that way. Now, if you're a first-timer who's with us this morning, a special thank you to you for being with us. We are so glad to worship with you this morning. If you could take your little Connect card out to our welcome desk here in the hallway, that'll give us a chance to meet you, give you some more information about our church, and answer any questions that you have. It's just a joy to have you with us this morning, so we're thankful, and we want a chance to meet you, so please give us that opportunity today. Well, as we prepare for the rest of our services this morning, let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord and a word of prayer. Our Father, again, we come to you just recognizing that you are a God of immense love, that you are 
the Father who has loved us before the foundation of the world, that you have given us the privilege that we should be called children of God. You have sent your Son into this world to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be adopted and brought into your family. And as such, we have all spiritual blessings that we have talked about here in recent weeks in our study of Ephesians, that we are richly blessed and we have an inheritance stored up for us in heaven because of your love that you have lavished so freely on us. This morning, Lord, as we come to your uh, time of worship, we just pray that you would sanctify our hearts through the ministry of your word. We're excited to, to sing together, to pray together, to uh, sit under the teaching of your word together today. So we pray that your spirit would powerfully move through the various ministries of your word, that we, Lord, might be transformed and renewed and live lives in such a way that bring honor and glory to your great name, the name in which we pray all of this together today. Amen. Well, in just a few minutes here, um, we're going to be blessed as Pastor Tyson comes and preaches to us. He's, he's going to be teaching us out of Ephesians, and um, he's going to be talking about um, who we are without Jesus Christ. And uh, as, as we study through that, um, you know, we, we see that, you know, spoiler, without Jesus Christ, we're dead. We're spiritually dead. Um, so as we think about that and... and uh, um, go through that today. It should make us thankful. It should put us in awe of God's great mercy um, that, that he saves us through the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, I wanted to read to you uh, from First Peter chapter 1 here. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, <clears throat> ready to be revealed in the last time. So church, as we think today um, about the mercy that God has had on us, let's be thankful, let's rejoice, and let's sing together about that mercy. Would you please stand? Your mercy is all my plea. Have no defense, my guilt runs to thee. The best of my works pierced your hands and your feet. Jesus, your mercy is all my plea. Your mercy is all my boast The goodness I claim The grounds of my hope Whatever I lack It's still what I need most Jesus, your mercy is all my boast Praise the King who bore my sin Took my place when I stood condemned Oh, how good you've always been to me I will sing of your mercy Jesus, 
Has me. 
Amen. You may be seated. And as you're taking your seats, the children ages three to kindergarten can make their way out the back and head to Children's Church if they so desire. Now, if you would join me in going to our God and Father in prayer. Our great, mighty God and Heavenly Father, today we ask you a special blessing on our earthly fathers. Lord, please bless them for the many times that they reflected the love, strength, generosity, wisdom, and mercy that you exemplify in your relationship with us as your covenant children. Lord, thank you for our fathers that have brought us up in the faith, that through their godly leadership and teaching, their secret prayers we didn't know about, and their active praying with us alongside our mothers, thank you that you've used these men to bring us into the faith, even when we didn't come willingly. We also ask your blessing, Father, on those men who served as father figures in our lives when our biological fathers weren't able or willing to do so, either by sin or circumstance. We remember and pray for your blessing on all of those that have helped fill those voids when a father passed too soon or was absent or unknown. Thank you for the grandfathers and uncles and brothers and cousins, teachers, coaches, and pastors. Thank you for the picture of your love that you've given us through our earthly dads and these other men. And for those among us that had absent or failed fathers, Lord, give us the grace to extend to them the same forgiveness that you've offered us. And for those of us that are also fathers now and all too often feel like failures ourselves, please grant us repentance for how we may have sinned against our own children, but also, Lord, please, please comfort us in the forgiveness that we have in Christ and encourage us to live up to our calling to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, not in our own strength, which will fail, but by faith and humility. And Lord, regardless of the relationship we have with these imperfect men that you've either placed or removed from our lives, or regardless of our imperfections as dads, we praise you most of all for the perfect fatherly love that you have for us, expressed most greatly through the giving of your son. Lord, we also give thanks and pray for this morning Calvary Baptist Bible Church in Peoria, our prayer church partner of Focus this week. Father, their prayer and one that we would double on their behalf is that your mighty word would sweep through their church body unhindered. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen those body, that body of believers with your gospel, using just your ordinary but miraculous means of faithful preaching and teaching and prayer. We pray, too, for Amanda King, our sent-go partner serving in Ecuador. There's currently a, a labor strike in the area, which is causing all kinds of disruption in God. Now, we know you're sovereign over this. We, we pray for your hand to guide the decision makers on each side of the conflict and, and lead to a peaceful and quick resolution. We also pray for your spirit to be active among the women who have been attending the ladies' Bible study and for those that have fallen out of attendance for either health reasons or, or other conflicts. Lord, please, please don't hide your face from them. Please specifically uh, make yourself known to Sandra, Beatrice, Gladys, Patty, and Esther. And Lord, further reveal your goodness even to Amanda. And for those other ladies in the area who seem to be feeling your pull, but they are resistant due to either family or cultural pressures, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work within them and, and give them a new heart of living flesh as opposed to hearts of stone that fear things that are fleshly. 
We also pray for our supported GO partners, Cameron and Roe Dobbins, who are serving at King's Cross Church in North Carolina. There are exciting, exciting things happening there with a potential uh, church merger and a relaunch of a church plant potentially in this coming year. I thank you, Lord, for Cameron's faithful leadership and his desire to serve in this way. I pray that you would bless his efforts and also bless Roe for her faithful support and encouragement of Cameron and how she so faithfully serves in the home and in the community, making Cameron's uh, service and mission possible. We trust your wisdom for the future of these churches in the area and the new church plant. We pray that uh, Cameron's desires and yours would be in alignment, uh, and as Cameron would heartily say, not his will, but yours be done. And finally, Lord, we ask that you prepare us for your truth this morning as Pastor Tyson brings us such glorious good news and truth from Ephesians 2. God, we know that, that your word, this written word that we have access to, is powerful. Not only do you use this word and have used it to bring us to saving faith, but you've given it to us. You've given us this holy scripture for our continued learning and our continued maturity in Christ. So, Father, please grant us this morning that we would hear this word, read it again, mark it up, really learn it, and truly digest it and uh, apply it to our lives rightly. Make it that through the comfort of your holy word, we would embrace and hold on dearly to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have promised to us and abundantly given to us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. With Ray, we'll please stand with us once more. We're going to continue celebrating God's great mercy by singing His mercy is more. What love could remember no wrongs we have done omniscient all-knowing He counts not their sum thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is
you would go ahead and pull out your Bibles, or swipe open your Bibles, depending on which one you use, to Ephesians chapter 2. That's our text for this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have two ushers who are going to walk down the aisle here and with a handful of Bibles, you just raise your hand and they would be more than happy to give you one. If you don't own one, please keep it as a gift from us to you. We would um, be heartbroken if anybody left here who doesn't own a Bible, if they left here without one. So it would be our pleasure to give you one. While you're turning there to Ephesians chapter 2, I just want to pose a question to you. What were you like before God saved you? What were you like? How did you think? How did you talk? How did you speak? Now the answer, if I were to survey the room, the answers are going to vary quite a bit depending on the time when you were saved and the circumstances surrounding your salvation. Somebody who was saved as a child is going to remember who they were before salvation very differently than somebody who was an adult or even a teenager. Somebody who lived their life in drunkenness or drug use, sexual immorality, will remember their life very differently before Christ than someone who never struggled with those things. Someone who never went to church growing up will remember very differently than someone who that's all they've ever known. Somebody who went to church all their life, went to church camp and didn't smoke, drink, or chew, or date the girls who do, they're going to have a very different story. Yet, no matter what you remember, what matters the most is not what you describe yourself as in the past, but what the Bible describes your past as. And even though there's differences in details in our personal stories, we all share one thing and the most important thing in common, and that's that we were equally the same in God's eyes. So in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes what we were like before Christ, what life was like. Why does he do this? Why dwell on the past? Isn't that unhealthy? Well, no. In this instance, it's actually healthy to do because Paul's main point is this. Understanding our life before Christ helps us better appreciate the greatness of God's saving power. You recall from last Sunday when Pastor Scott preached on the end of chapter 1 in Ephesians, He reminded us that God wants us to continually grow in our knowledge of the hope we have in Christ and in the understanding of the power of God in our life. The same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. So in chapter 2, what Paul is now doing is he's He's describing the inner workings and details of how salvation is brought about so that you can better know that power of God. The more you know, the more you hope. But this morning, we're just looking at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2. And just those verses alone, they're not really encouraging. They're kind of grim, 
kind of bleak, not very hopeful. They're really discouraging because it's, it's just bad news. He doesn't give us the main point, the good news, until verse 5, which I don't get to preach on. Pastor Kevin will preach on that when he gets back. But it's all connected. Believe it or not, this is another long sentence from Paul. He has an affinity for these long sentences. The main subject and the main verb of this passage doesn't occur till verse 4 and 5. So I'm going to go ahead and give you the spoiler. So here's the spoiler. But God, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. That's the good news. But it's only good if you understand the bad news first. So even though we're going to focus this morning on a somewhat sobering and heavy topic of our sinful past, I want us to keep in mind that the emphasis of this passage is not on us. It's on God. And I think that'll be fully clear as we walk through the text. But to fully understand and appreciate the saving power of God, you have to understand the bad news first. As one commentator put it, the gravity of our previous condition serves to magnify the wonder of God's mercy. The past is recalled, not because the emphasis falls upon it, but in order to draw attention to God's mighty action in Christ. So, if you are able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word as I read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Would you bow your heads with me as I pray? Father, we thank you for this time that we have together to study and pour over your text. But I do pray, this is a, this is a difficult text, and difficult in the sense that it is a humbling text. So I pray that you would help us to abase ourselves, that you would humble us, that you would pull down our walls of arrogance so that we can see ourselves for who we were and then better appreciate who we are in Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to really see the gravity of our, our life before Christ so that we can glorify you and magnify you and have greater hope in the power that you have displayed in our lives. I ask this in your son's name. Amen. So as we walk through these three verses, this is what Paul does. Paul paints two pictures, two portraits of what we were like before Christ. They are ugly portraits, very, very ugly, but it helps us better appreciate the power of God in our lives. And the first portrait he paints is that we were spiritually dead. It says in verse one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He just comes right out the gate, doesn't, doesn't hold any punches back. He just says, you were dead. But what does that mean? Is he talking about physical death? No. 
And that's pretty clear just from this text because he says you were dead, but then he goes on in the verses to follow to say, but you were doing all these things. So he's not talking about a physical death. He's talking about a spiritual death. What does that mean? What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, we can draw parallels from physical death to spiritual death. So for example, let's say I have a dog, golden retriever named Shadow. I watched Homeward Bound a lot growing up, okay? So one day I call for Shadow. I call out to him, but I hear no barking and he doesn't come. So that's weird. So I go and look for him and I find him lying on the ground. So then I call his name again, Shadow. Nothing, doesn't respond. So I'm starting to get a little more concerned now. So I go over to him. I touch him, push on him, yell his name some more. Still nothing. So then I'm more concerned. I, I, I look, I watch his chest cavity to see if it's contracting, expanding. Is he breathing? Put a, a mirror up to his nose to see if it fogs at all. Nothing. Shadow's dead. Shadow is not responding to any stimulation or anything at all. He's unable to. And in the same way, physical death renders us unable to respond to any kind of external stimulation. It's the same way with our spiritual death. Spiritual death means that we are unable to respond. To what? Well, it means that we are unresponsive toward God. We are unresponsive both in our ability, but also our will. Somebody who's physically dead has no willpower to bring themselves back to life, and they have no ability to do so. And it's the same way in our spiritual state before Christ. We were unable to live for God. That is to do any kind of good or righteous good deed in his eyes. We were unwilling to live for God and his glory. We were unable to communicate with God, unable to hear God, to see him, unable to respond to God in any positive way. And we were separated from the life of God, alienated from him. And if you went to church all of your life in this state, it didn't matter. It didn't matter how much you went to church. It didn't matter how many Bible verses you had memorized. It didn't matter how many mission trips you went on. It didn't matter how many times you heard the gospel. You were spiritually dead, a spiritual corpse. James Montgomery Boyce says, like a spiritual corpse, a sinner is unable to make a single move toward God, think a single thought about God, or even correctly respond to God, unless God is first present to bring the spiritually dead person to life. I don't know about you, but this completely and radically changes our understanding of why we needed a Savior. We weren't just in trouble because we sinned against God. We were completely dead. John Piper helpfully illustrates it this way. He says, the reason we need a Savior It's not just that we are in the doghouse with God and need to be forgiven for offending his glory. We need a savior because we are in the morgue. In the doghouse, you might whimper. You might say you are sorry. You might make some good resolutions. You might decide to cast yourself on the mercy of God. But what can you do if you are in the morgue? 
Now this begs a question. Why are we dead? What happened? Did we start off okay and then sinned and then became dead? And Paul says that we were born this way, that this is why we are dead is because it's in our nature. We were unresponsive to God because or by our nature. And this is what Paul meant when he wrote in verse one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You notice he doesn't say you were dead because you trespassed and sinned. He says in your trespasses and sins. What he means, in other words, is that we are spiritually dead or were spiritually dead because we existed in a state of spiritual sinfulness. And this is in perfect line with what Paul says in verse 2, where he calls us sons of disobedience. It's as if our parents were Mr. Sin and Mrs. Sin, and when they produced us, we had their nature, sinfulness. We were born with the spiritual genes of sinfulness. The reason why it's in our spiritual genetic makeup is because of Adam and Eve. Romans 5.12 says that, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So there is this aspect where Adam was a representative for all of humanity. And when he sinned, the consequences of that extended to all who would come from him. And the death that this is talking about is not just a physical death, but a spiritual one as well. This is interesting to note, since we are by nature sinful, we don't really recognize it before Christ because we're unaware. As a fish is unaware that it's wet, we are unaware because it's just how we've always known. It's how we've always existed. Charles Spurgeon once said that as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. See, this paints a very, very different picture of how we view ourselves. We tend to try to pretty up how we think of ourselves. We acknowledge, hey, okay, I know I've sinned against God, done some bad things, I deserve punishment, but I mean, didn't I do something? Didn't I have something to do with my salvation? I mean, God has to give me grace. I get that. It's by grace alone we're saved. But God gave me grace, and so then I responded, right? Well, we tend to view ourselves like a terminally ill patient, like where we're just bedridden, can't even lift up our arms, and we need the medicine of God's salvation, and God has it in the spoon, and he puts it up to our lips, and we have to take it. We have to open up our mouths. And that sounds good and biblical, but the problem is the Bible says we're not terminally ill. It says we're dead. You can't open your mouth. You can't take the medicine. You can't respond. Another illustration I've heard is it's it's as if you're drowning in the ocean and God comes along like the Coast Guard and he throws you a life preserver. You got to grab it. And when you do, he pulls you in. But again, the problem is we're not drowning. We've drowned 
We're dead. We need divine resuscitation, divine CPR. This is an ugly portrait that Paul paints. And just like physical death, there is no middle ground. You can't be part dead, part alive. You're all dead, and it impacts all of your life. Or as Miracle Max said in the movie Princess Bride, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. Go through his clothes and look for loose change. That gets the picture though, right? From that movie, we understand that there's, there's only all dead. And that's the way we were before Christ. But that's not the only thing we were. He paints a second picture in verses 2 through 3. And in this picture, he paints us in a seemingly the opposite fashion. First, he says, you're dead. Now he says, we're sinfully alive. Verses 2 through, I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 3 again, just because they flow into each other. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in verse 1, we're portrayed as this putrid, decaying, spiritual corpse. But then in verses 2 through 3, we're portrayed as alive. And maybe some of you are already going there in your mind, but it's like, we were zombies with the walking dead spiritually zombies. And the sinful nature that, that we had from birth produced sinful actions. He says we once walked in trespasses and sins. Uh, walked is a euphemism that you find all throughout the Bible. It just means it's how you lived your life. So sin is not just this single or sporadic accident. It's a lifestyle. So in keeping with our dead sinful nature, we were actively sinning all the time. But what did, what did that look like? Well, in verses 2 through 3, Paul goes to describe how we were living in our deadness. The first thing he describes is that we were living for a godless worldview. And that's what he means when he says we were following the course of this world. The, the word world refers to a system of ideology or thinking or um, thinking and ideas. It, in today's terminology, we might call it the, the spirit of the age. So to follow the course of the world means we weren't concerned at all with how God thinks about things. We weren't concerned at all about what God's word says. And we weren't concerned at all about the judgment to come. What we were concerned with and captive to are the values of the present evil age, which are hostile towards Christ. You might say, well, what does it look like to follow the course of the world? Think about the current trends of our society and how people are swayed. Um, People are influenced and enslaved at times to the news media. And people turn on the news and their heart rate increases. They get stressed, anxious about things and it informs their thinking and then leads to the way they act. People are influenced by Hollywood through movies and television, willingly zombified as they binge watch on Amazon or Netflix or whatever platform. 
We're even influenced by the commercials we see that tell us you need this to be happy. We're also influenced by the music we listen to, video games that are played, social media use, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, the like. We're enslaved by peer pressure from family, from friends, co-workers, fellow students. We're led captive by cultural norms or man-centered religion. All of these are the mediums or vehicles with which the world influences people. It's where we see the spirit of the age, where, where people's worldview is both informed and formed. It's manifested in worldviews like YOLO. You only live once, so live it up. Or whatever you want to do, do it if it makes you happy. Or like Disney movies, you can be whatever you want to be. Just believe. Or the worst one, just follow your heart. Ooh, Jeremiah 17, 9 would recommend not following your heart. But this is what we were enslaved to in our zombified past. Even as Christians, these things can still influence us. But before Christ, we were enslaved to them. We swam downstream with the current with no effort to resist. But that's not all Paul says. We went from living for a godless worldview to also living for a satanic agenda. We were following a supernatural being who was working behind the scenes. He says in verse two that we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So how do we know that this is Satan? Well, you have the term prince there, which in the Greek is also can be translated ruler. And in different places in the Bible, uh, Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. And Paul also tells us that he's the prince of power, which refers to his rule over the demonic forces. And the domain of his authority is the air, not the atmosphere, not material but immaterial, the space between uh, earth and heaven that is invisible. That is the domain of his authority. And even though God is the ultimate authority over all things and places and, and people, just like Satan, he has given a level of authority and power to Satan in this world. That's why the Bible also calls Satan the God, lowercase g, of this world, of this age. However, Contrary to popular thought, God is not in some universal battle of cosmic forces good against evil. Satan does not rule in hell, and he does not rule in heaven. He has been allotted a limited amount of power and authority on earth. And those who are not, who are not believers, who are not in Christ, are under that authority. But when we're in Christ, he has no power and authority over our lives. So how did Satan get us to live for this agenda, this satanic agenda? You might immediately jump to, in your mind, temptation. Well, Satan tempts us to disobey, to sin. Or maybe he sends a, a proxy demon to do the tempting. But we have to be really careful not to look for Satan under every bush in our lives. Not to overly attribute temptation to him. Because Satan is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at all time like God is. No doubt he is a supernatural being who has great power, but he's not all powerful and he is not 
He does not have an infinite amount of resources. This means he can't be tempting everyone around the world at all times. The Bible tells us that Satan gets people to live for his agenda by deceiving the nations, swaying unbelievers, blinding the hearts of unbelievers, and energizing people to oppose God. So if Satan isn't able to be everywhere at once, how does he do this? Through lies and deceit. He is the father of all lies. One lie can deceive countless people. Satan didn't just tempt Adam and Eve by pestering them. Eat it, eat the fruit, eat it, eat it, eat it. Come on, do it. He did it with a lie. He twisted God's words. And once they believed that lie, the sin took care of itself. Jesus was tempted by Satan and and Satan did it by twisting and deceiving the meaning of scripture. Satan is the peddler and promoter of lies that drive a godless worldview. One popular and incredibly influential lie as an example that we see is the idea that you can earn your salvation. You can earn your way into heaven. Every religion that has ever existed and currently exists in this world, apart from Christianity, is built upon this premise that if you do X, Y, and Z, you can be in heaven. Whether it's Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Roman Catholic Church, on and on, there is a foundational belief in a lie that you can earn your way into heaven. That's one example. Another lie that is similar is universalism. The idea that no matter what you believe or who you believe in, all roads lead to heaven. You believe in Allah, good for you. You believe in Jesus, that's nice. You believe in Buddha, hey, cool. We're all just, it's one mountain and we're all just on different paths to the same destination. Another lie that is very prevalent today is postmodernism or moral relativism. That's the idea that truth And morality is whatever you want it to be. It's relevant. It's all about what the society decides it's what is best. It doesn't matter if God made marriage to be between one man and one woman. It doesn't matter if God created male and female. You can be whatever you want to be if it makes you happy. You can marry whoever you want to marry if it makes you happy. That is postmodernism. This is the intangible way that Satan is at work in the world. It's why he is further described as the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan's work occurs on a spiritual level and he is at work actively energizing unbelievers, sons of disobedience to rebel against God. But that's not all. In verse 3, Paul continues on and he describes us as living for our ungodly desires. In your sermon notes, it says ungodly nature, but a better word is desires. I turned this in and then as I kept studying, I was like, don't, I can't change it. So I'm telling you to change it. But he says this in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in in addition to following the course of the world and following a satanic agenda, we also follow our own ungodly desires. 
we had strong inclinations toward desires of every kind. We even took desires that are good and that God wants us to have and we warped them and twisted them and made them into idols and turned them into lusts. We sinned if we didn't get what we wanted and we sinned to get what we wanted. We were driven by this nature to satisfy ungodly urges, whatever we wanted, and we sought it with great diligence. And just like animals act on basic instinct, we acted on the basic instinct of our sinful nature. Titus 3.3 soberly says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were enslaved to our broken, sinful desires. Whether that was selfishness, laziness, gluttony, pride, lying, stealing, sexual immorality, gossiping, envy, jealousy, anger, bitterness, hate, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, self-harm, any kind of idolatry. We were enslaved to it. Do you guys know what Stockholm Syndrome is? It's a condition used to describe people who form an attachment with somebody who hurts and abuses them. It's a condition used to explain why in hostage situations, people uh, develop an attachment to their captors or why when somebody's kidnapped and they have a chance to escape, they don't. Or why when a spouse is abused, they don't tell anybody or they don't try to flee. We have a similar situation of spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. Even though we are oppressed by the influence of the world, we're enslaved to the satanic agenda, we don't care. In fact, we like it because it meets the needs of our ungodly desires. So we don't try to flee. We don't try to course correct. We just keep on keeping on. We lived for these things. Like a disobedient child, we didn't like being told what to do. We want what we want, and we want it now. Our ungodly desires teamed up with the other two, the satanic agenda and the influence of the world, to really put us in a place where we were just in a losing battle spiritually. No way in our own strength could we ever win that battle. Our spiritual deadness was complete. And all of this left us living under God's wrath. That's what Paul ends verse 3 saying, By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, rather than being children of God and objects of his love, we were children of wrath, objects of his eternal judgment and condemnation like the rest of mankind. To be a child of wrath means we were fit for, bent toward, predisposed, or worthy of God's wrath. Wrath is pictured like a parent here, and we were its offspring. We were naturally and inherently deserving it. There's two types of wrath that we find in the Bible. There's one that's a present wrath that people experience in this life, and then there's a wrath that's one in the future. In Romans chapter 1, the present wrath is described, and it's described as God pouring it out on all ungodliness. And what, the way it's manifested is what happens is when God gives this wrath to people, unbelievers, he removes the gracious restraint that holds us back from sinning. 
So when we continue to persist in our sin, oftentimes God graciously restrains us from doing the worst things we could ever do. But when he reveals his wrath against ungodliness, he pulls away that seatbelt and lets us plunge headlong into our desires to the destruction of our flesh. And if we continue to suppress the truth of the gospel, then eventually to our future destruction, which is the second type of wrath, the future wrath, the one that God is storing up and pours out his fury upon unbelievers via eternal damnation in hell. It's not a popular doctrine. We're often tempted to leave this off when we talk about the good news of the gospel. But it's important because God is not ambivalent He's not neutral toward us in unbelief. And we aren't indifferent towards him either. Bible says we're enemies of God. We're hostile toward him. As a result, God responds with furious and righteous wrath. We used to live under that. But God's wrath doesn't stand against God's grace and love. His wrath does not contradict his mercy And Paul makes that very clear in verses 4 and 5. Starting with the greatest conjunction of all time, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It doesn't say, but when you prayed a prayer, but when you decided, but when you asked Jesus into your heart, it says, but God made you alive. Do you better appreciate and understand what God has done now? We were dead and he made us alive. We were unable to respond, unable to do anything. No effort of ours could save us. We didn't contribute in the slightest. God didn't do 99% and we did 1%. He saved us from our deadness, from slavery to the world, slavery to Satan, and our own sinful nature. And he saved us from his wrath. How could he do that? By pouring it out on his son on the cross. This was the cure for our spiritual deadness, that Christ died so that God could make us alive. This passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it is critical for understanding the saving power of God in our lives. There's, there's no language in the Bible about making decisions for, to follow Christ. There's no language in the Bible about praying a special prayer to accept Jesus. Instead, we're told we were dead. And the only thing that helped was God making us alive. God, through the Spirit, quickens us to life. We don't use that word very much in our vocabulary these days, quickening. The only time we might ever hear it is in reference to pregnancy. When a, when a woman first feels an inkling of life inside her womb, it's referred to as a quickening. In Ephesians 2.5, we are said to be quickening, to being made alive. It's what the Bible calls in other places regeneration. Or in John chapter 3, being born again. So how should we respond to a text as sobering as this? 
Well, the first thing I think it does is it helps us have a biblical language for describing our personal testimony, for telling people what we were like when we're explaining the gospel. You see, it doesn't matter the differences in the personal details of your testimony, the, the timing of it, the when it happened, or the circumstances surrounding, because we all have the same thing in common. We were spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. We were the walking dead. Every testimony, therefore, is dramatic because it is the telling of a miracle that happened in your life. You were dead, but now you're alive. Every testimony is equally powerful when it points to God and what he has done. And when our testimonies are God-centered, the gospel is shared all the more clearly to those we tell. But some of you listening right now need to examine your spiritual state. That this text should call you to examine yourself to see whether or not you are spiritually dead we're spiritually alive in Christ. Churches are full of spiritual corpses. You have to ask yourself, is my life characterized by following the influences of the world? By living for an ungodly worldview? Are you characterized in your life as buying wholesale into the lies of this world peddled by Satan? Is your life characterized by giving in and continually, regularly, the pattern of your life to the sinful impulses of your heart? If that is the characterization of your life, then you are still under the wrath of God. But there's hope. I would urge you to look to the glorious truth of the gospel to turn your eyes to Christ and cry out and ask for life. You now have heard that you can't do anything except look to Christ. Ask for that life. Ask to be born again. Ask for him to save you knowing that you can't do anything. This passage then also shapes how we evangelize, how we share the gospel with other people. It really liberates our evangelism. Even though it's not the main point of the text at all, it does help us understand why the world acts the way it does. When we look at the news and we just kind of go, oh my goodness, what is happening out there? It's like, oh, they're spiritually dead. And apart from the grace of God, go I. If God hadn't intervened, I'd be doing the same thing. So it helps us understand why people do what they do, but then it also reminds us that when we share the gospel, we are not responsible for the success, for the conversion of a soul. Because we can't make dead people come to life. Only God can. We're only responsible to preach and proclaim Christ crucified. That's it. And then when somebody is converted, when somebody is brought to new life through that message, Guess who gets all the glory? Not me. Only the power of God can do that. Through the simple message that seems like foolishness to the world, God uses to give life. But first and foremost, 
what this passage should do, how we should apply this, is that it should cause us to have a greater awe and thankfulness for what God has done in our life. If you don't understand who you were before Christ, according to what the Bible says, then when you reflect on your salvation, it's kind of like chewing juicy fruit gum. It tastes good for like 30 seconds and then it's like, ugh, it gets stale and you got to throw it away. You already got to cram a bunch of more pieces in your mouth. It's just not that good. But when you understand where we came from, what our state was like before Christ, it's like an everlasting gobstopper. The flavor never ends and the delights never end. It just causes delight and rejoicing. That's the main point of this text that we should find greater understanding, greater hope in knowing the saving power of God that brought dead sinners to life. So let us leave this morning from here rejoicing in God's power that raised us from the dead. Let's pray. Father, how can we begin to praise you adequately enough, sufficiently enough for what you have done in our lives. We are so thankful, so amazed at your love, the depth of your mercy and grace, your patience as, as, we, as we sang earlier, that as we constantly roamed, we rejoice that no matter how much we've sinned in the darkness of our sinfulness, your mercy was more. We thank you for plucking us from the fire of your wrath, for showing us your love, and for giving us new life, new desires, a new heart. And I pray, Lord, that from this day forth, we will always give you all the glory. We boast in the cross of Christ alone, and that would be the only song on our lips as we proclaim it to the world, that God saves and may you be glorified as we continue to savor and delight in the glory of salvation, the power of God that you have worked in our lives. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, would you please stand and let's sing our response together.
that song. Would you please uh, read the benediction with me as we go forth from Ephesians chapter 3, 20 through 21. Let's say it out loud together. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.